Five Things First Thing with JR Morning's Guy Gordon, Lloyd Jackson, and Jamie Edmonds. Um, the thing that really hammered at home is that she was the last adult with the gun. And that's where I'll end my, my comment. Thank you. So that's the jury forewoman in the Jennifer Crumley case after delivering a unanimous verdict for involuntary manslaughter convictions against Jennifer Crumley, one for each child that died tragically on November 30th, 2021. I don't know. You guys tell me. Are there winners here? Um, no, I guess because the, there you are could four say lives the lost. system did its job, so we all win when that happens, if you believe that the system did its job yesterday. Um, maybe maybe child psychologists are going to be winning big because one of the messages coming down from this is you better not ignore your son or daughter's difficulties. Yeah, and uh, how does how much further does it go past locking up your gun? And that's kind of the key question here. Does this set a new standard for parental behavior? I would argue that, boy, we in the media really get it so full of ourselves sometimes. Saying, well, this is precedent setting. This changes everything. This is historic. This is a nationwide decision. There were always standards for gross negligence. And this case happened to ping all of them. Mm-hmm. It was so egregious on so many levels that it really was the perfect case and the mm-hmm. perfect storm. So that does does that mean that it's an outlier or that we'll see a spate of these? I think this case's details, all of them together, provided this conviction of a parent in a school shooter case. Does it go wider in that parents should probably keep an eye on the guns they have in their house? Sure. Under the law as of next Tuesday, it's the law in Michigan. And we'll have to get into it deeper when that happens, and we'll we'll do a deep dive into it. But it basically says if there's a minor in a household, the gun needs to be properly secured, and there are standards for that. And if you have, a, and if that happened in this case, perhaps these children would be alive. Exactly. Well, how about putting a? And this is again. That's why there were so many elements to this case that were offensive to a jury, and that being, you didn't even put a combination in your gun safe. Mm. You yeah. never took the cable lock out of the plastic package that it came in. So if you have an aggressive uh, prosecutor and you have a child that is, uh, you know, mentally ill or has some mental issues, you know, are we do we start locking up the knives? Do we lock up the bats in the closet? So, uh, you know, because they may go grab it and hurt, kill somebody. That's that's the real question in the hands or let's just take this in the hands of an activist prosecutor that's anti-gun mm-hmm. in a county that's anti-gun. Mm-hmm. Do you use this to harass gun owning parents and what becomes the new standard of for for reasonable care is it we i put in the gun and i locked it but they somehow figured out the combination you know jeff schwartz is a former judge he's now a cooley law professor this is what he says about how far reaching this verdict could be this could it depends on the prosecutors and the place where they're working and what the community wants uh they have the ability now to use this as a kind of persuasive precedent to say, we need to do the same thing here. This is going to be really anti-gun people who are going to move forward with this kind of thing to place more onus on gun owners to be more careful with their guns. Uh, and I think we're gonna see some backlash in other places. It's, it's, it's not over yet in the context of who's gonna do what, but it clearly is going to affect jurisprudence around the country. It's gonna be tested, we're gonna find the boundaries, but that was Jeff Schwartz, again, professor from Cooley Law School. We'll be speaking with him at nine seven nineteen and going a little deeper into this. But those are all questions I think that average parents 
are waking up with this morning? Mm-hmm. Do I need to lock up the knife drawer? Um, it I, might I just don't think it goes to that level I, today. I thinking of the scenario that, okay, you know, am I using due care when I give my child the keys if he's going to run some errands from me and he mm-hmm. decides instead to, to drive into a group of pedestrians because he's been having homicidal thoughts I don't know about? I would think that this case would not lead that to be prosecuted because I still used reasonable care and there was nothing foreseeable. Right. It, you know, it wasn't like I had the artwork that we had in this case. Right. Correct. There was artwork. There were so many facts in this case that led us to this point. And thinking about the knives and the guns in the house, I think it's just an overreach today. Wait and see what happens. Well, if you have a a, a child who has some uh, issues and you know about it and you're a parent, this morning when you wake up, you, mm-hmm. you may decide to, you know, delve more into it and find out well, what's going on. Well, is that a bad thing? No, it's not. Right. It's, you, what you should have been doing anyway. Right. But sometimes parents just kind of let that go to the side. They don't really take a look or they don't want to see it. They see it. They don't want to see it. They don't mm-hmm. want to do anything. But I think after this verdict, people, you know, parents will say, maybe I need to do something, which is what you should be doing anyway. anyway. Yeah. Hannah uh, St. Juliana's father was among those in the courtroom, and NBC caught up with Steve St. Juliana shortly after um, the verdicts were read and asked him, what would you like to say to the jury? Anything you want to say to the jury. Uh, just thank you for using common sense. Something that was in such short supply on November 29th and 30th. And Craig Schilling, who is the uh, father of Justin Schilling, says there has to be some type of accountability with parents concerning their child. It is your choice to have a child, and you cannot choose to not take care of your child. You cannot choose to not nurture your child. You cannot choose to um, take your own interest over your child, especially when it comes to mental health. It's just his heartache, and you saw the hugs that the family members gave to the prosecutors. You know, there wasn't any jubilation there. Mm-mm. You no. didn't hear anybody say yes. Or it, no. It wasn't about winning and losing. It's just this struggle to find some meaning and some accountability. Tate Mayer's father, uh, I saw, uh, had said, uh, I think his name was Buck Mayer. He said, you know, we, we were waiting for something like this, but it doesn't bring my son back. Exactly. And nothing ever will. And, yeah. and uh, you know, we heard that from, from other parents as well. And, and there's just going to be this void and this emptiness. But at least they felt the system is working and that one of the, and the, you know, this is, you, you were pointing out, mm-hmm. okay, so Jennifer Crumbly, next comes James Crumbly. Yes. Then there are, I think, two, if not three civil suits to ask school officials, why didn't you look in the bag? Mm-hmm. Why mm-hmm. didn't you hunt her social media feed and say, oh, there's a gun? Um, where was your due care? Right. And I yeah. saw something that if school officials have any inkling of a problem, send them home. Don't say go back to class. Yeah, and my counter to that is then they can go home and get a gun and come back. Um, but you're, you're right. Uh, I, I do think that there will be a new standard in terms of having to get treatment for a child that you think yeah. is having problems. Heaven knows the threat assessment process has been reviewed and reformed at a number of schools in light of what happened at, at mm-hmm. uh, Oxford, and we'll see that uh, going forward. Uh, it appears that the border bill is... Dead or on arrival, not just in the House, but in the Senate. Uh, and now 
members of the GOP saying that Mitch McConnell should be removed from leadership in the Senate because he was initially supportive of this. This is Senator Ted Cruz. The objective of this bill was, number one, to do nothing, so to, to do zero to, to, to secure the border, but to let every Democrat running for office say, gosh, I wanted to secure the border. But those mean Republicans wouldn't let us. Brandon Judd, to your point yesterday, Jamie, who is head of the Border Patrol Union, said, no, it didn't do nothing. Uh, it wasn't perfect, but it would have stemmed the flow and led to disincentives for future migrants. And, and when you look right now what we're currently dealing with, um, this is a slow month, and we're dealing with 6,700 apprehensions on a daily basis. What this would do is it would cap it to where we couldn't take anything more than 5,000. Now, this does not say that we're going to release 5,000 people into the United States. In fact, it's, it's the exact opposite. It says that we will hold single adults in custody. Um, they will not be subject to release. Uh, and so that is a huge deterrent. That will deter an awful lot of people from crossing our borders illegally. We know. So, you know, you've got these. If It's hard to find a nonpartisan mm-hmm. review of this. But from the Border Patrol who the GOP, they've been allies. Well, they're not listening to him this time, and the question is, why? Is it partisan? Is it Donald Trump? Is it MAGA Nation saying we need this to beat Joe I, Biden? I don't quite understand sending <clears throat> Senator Lankford to go do some hard work and then just, like, letting him out to dry mm-hmm. after he puts in the work. And you said to him, we want to find a way to support Ukraine and Israel and, and secure the border. <clears throat> All they delivered this? All that was done. Yeah. And, and by his measure, and we, we heard from him yesterday, it would have taken, for instance, one million entries, and it would have dropped it to 200,000. And for those that went into the system, that processed them, it would have raised the bar. So even fewer of the 200,000 would actually right. ever get into the interior. Um, we uh, will be having a conversation about what's next with Debbie Dingle, Congresswoman from Michigan's 6th District at 619, next on GR Morning. Well, as we said, the Senate negotiated border bill, the bill that was requested by those in the House and the Senate on both sides of the aisle saying, please find us a way to get to support for Israel and Ukraine and a stronger border security and national security at our southern border. Uh, Senate negotiators worked like dogs. They did that. And when a few short days before they delivered it, well, that's when the drumbeat began. Was it all partisan or was this bill deeply Law. Debbie Dingle, U.S. Congresswoman of Michigan's 6th District, uh, apparently isn't going to get a chance to vote on it based on what the speaker has said. She joins us on our live line this morning. Debbie Dingle, good morning. Good morning to all of you. I hope you are having a good one. We are. We have a good one every morning. <laughs> yes, we, we, do. we kind of make it the mission no matter what the news is doing. Um, just give me your initial reaction to this just unique set of circumstances where there was a stated goal in Michigan, there was delivery of a compromise, and it was dead before it even left their lips. I, I'm going to be very blunt. Uh, they've been crying for immigration reform. We do need it. I mean, I hear it from my constituents all the time. Immigration reform is one of the toughest subjects we have to do. Republican presidents, Democratic presidents have failed to do it. You had a group of bipartisan senators who worked on a proposal for four months. It was going to be part of a security deal that was funding that would have included Ukraine and uh, Israel. And then before ever giving people an opportunity to consider it, to look at it, 
to vote it up and down. Donald Trump said he did not want a border deal. He did not want anything to be reached that would help the American people. He wanted a Republican win. He didn't want an American people win. And the bill has essentially been withdrawn and killed before the Congress can even consider it. I think it's irresponsible. I think it, I've said to you before, people have tried for decades to get an immigration bill. Uh, but to pull it for straight, pure political reasons. I wasn't set to Washington, and I don't think anybody else was, to get a Democratic win or get a Republican win. I was sent to Washington to get a win for the people I represent and the American people. It's irresponsible. It's, I can think of about 10 other words, and it is not the way we should be running the government to keep our nation safe. And to point out, we should, we should state, fact, categorical fact, the Border Patrol Union said this is a tool we need. It would reduce the flow that we're seeing now, <clears throat> and while imperfect, gives us the tools uh, to solve the problem. And in fact, under this bill, the border would be closed today. Those people would be automatically turned back. Congresswoman, does this uh, the failure of them passing this bill, does it uh, give, um, you know, President Biden a kind of a political upper hand? Because he can go out and say now that, you know, listen, this deal had been brokered uh, by both sides. And then the former president comes and torpedoes it and kicks the can down the road. You know, what is my question, my problem with your question, Lloyd, is, is it a political, I hate the political filter. I do, I mean, I know what you're doing is yeah, the right uh, yeah. thing. But we need to be doing this for country. We need to be doing this for national security. And so they've been saying that the president's done nothing to keep the border secure. And by the way, he has been asking for money, for custom agents, for more money, for judges so that we can process people that are coming through and asking for asylum, turning around people. He's asked to have people held in Mexico. There have been many things. And I mean, yes, the president can say this. He can say that Donald Trump didn't want the want something to happen that would be good for the American people so that they might say that the it happened, which, by the way, if it happened, it would have been Democrats and Republicans coming together, mm-hmm. compromising, which is not a ba- bad word. People compromise is not a bad word to do something to keep the nation safe. And instead, did not want one party or the other to have a win. And this bill would have been a win for the American people. And I didn't like everything in it, but it made significant steps in immigration reform that we have needed for decades. Congresswoman, my question is on process. Say they didn't like what was in the bill. Couldn't it still have been brought forth and then debated in the House? Should have been. It wasn't. Well, Mike Johnson... It's not getting out of the Senate, apparently. Um, well, debated yeah. there, too. I mean, if you don't Correct. like it, at least talk. Yeah, Lankford said he yeah. wanted to have, I'm, he said, I welcome amendments. Right. Right, and he did say that, and that bill should have come over to the House side, could have gone through the normal committee process. We need to be doing, we are not operating under normal committee process. You know, it was one of Chip Roy, who's a Republican, his office is across from mine, we're friends. Stood on the floor of that room. He's a Republican. He's a member of the Freedom Caucus. Stood on the floor in November and looked at his colleagues and said, tell me one thing that we have done in this house that I can go home and tell my constituents 
I've done to help <clears throat> make it better for them. Yeah. It, we are just this is we we're in a political fray, and I'm not going to give up. I'm going to keep fighting because okay. I believe in civility, respect. But we got issues to get done. So two questions. You've got H.R. 2 over in the House. When we had Congressman Tim Wahlberg on, he said, look, I'm not crazy about this Senate bill. I think we've got something better on the House side. Let's get to work on H.R. 2, which has so far keeps getting shoved to the side. And secondly, if President Biden wants to show his credibility on this, how about if he undoes some of the things he did about entering office? Like, why not just restore remain in Mexico? use the power of the executive branch the way we've seen it used before under Donald Trump to undo some of this. His State Department people have been trying to negotiate that with Mexico. You know that they've gone and and uh, been uh, negotiating with Mexico on that. He, at one point, I can't remember the timing on it. i got to go back and I will research it for you. We did have that policy at some point again. That, you know, that's also, you got to get Mexico to agree with that. Um, we need to be looking at different things, but quite frankly, why can't, okay, you say you want HR2, why aren't you moving it? Why aren't you at least bringing it to the floor? Putting people, I'm not sure I like HR2, but... Didn't they bring it to the floor twice? I could be wrong about that, but I I thought, and understand that the Jew, I I mean, but it would need Democrat backing. Would that be there? That Republicans have the votes right now. They're narrow, but the Republicans could pass it. Why haven't they passed it? You know, they're in the majority. I mean, we need to get this done. This is tough. This is one of the hardest issues that we've got to deal with. But I wasn't sent to Washington to play games and and do easy things. I was sent to Washington to do the hard things that make life better for the people I represent. Uh, It was a banner day yesterday. There was an impeachment vote that failed. Um, Talk to me about the day that it was and how that went down. Well, I'm going to say something to you. I don't think it was a banner day. I think it was an embarrassing day. Well, I meant that and facetiously, yes. Th- that's that's Jamie's sarcasm. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jamie. I think it's embarrassing to watch it. I mean, it was... Mayorkas is a, a, a very decent man. Uh, he has spent more time with the, uh, some of the border issues in Michigan and some of the uh, very tough homeland security issues that we have in Michigan, as you know, with... The Arab American community doesn't, uh, I won't use the word I wanted to do, but he's talked straightforward uh, with that community. And they're just on a mission to try to embarrass cabinet members. So they did not have the votes yesterday to impeach him. Mike Gallagher from Wisconsin is one of the most decent, uh, you know, he's an honorable man, was this is not, he, what you're accusing him of does not reach uh, high treason. Uh, crimes and he's not so they did not have the votes to do it so they did not uh, impeach him and they played political games uh, with funding for national security and helping our allies they moved an Israel bill they had no humanitarian funding nothing for Ukraine uh, onto the floor and they did not get the votes for that either Debbie, you say you want to do something about it. We're going to hope that you can help push your colleagues in one direction and that cooler heads may prevail and that it's, this isn't just pressing pause for political reasons. Thanks for your time this morning. Thank you. Have a good day, my friend. You too.
The involuntary manslaughter trial of Jennifer Crumbly, mother of the Oxford High shooter, is over after a jury found her guilty on all four charges of involuntary manslaughter against her in the deaths of Hannah St. Juliana, Tate Meir, Justin Schilling, and Madison Baldwin in the Oxford school shooting. The uh, person to analyze this legal saga is back in studio with us again. We welcome back to the studio attorney Todd Flood of Flood Law. Todd, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Surprised at the verdict or not? No, I wasn't surprised. I, I think we called it um, ahead of time. The the facts, this was a fact-driven case. And you just take that one day of November 30th, you look at what happened in that 11 to 12 minutes in that office with the school of administrators and officials and the indifference that Jennifer Crumbly had to that meeting and then just walk backwards. How many red sirens did she walk through? knowing that uh, her child was in peril, but yet had a complete indifference. We've talked about all the details of this case with you throughout several weeks. What about what the foreman said? What sort of stuck in their mind? Let's let's hear from her for okay. just a moment. And sure. uh, talking about what they, and it was a brief comment that she made, but it was instructive in terms of what the pivotal evidence right. And the, the, the kind of the tipping point evidence for them. Yeah. Um, the thing that really hammered it home is that she was the last adult with the gun. And that's where I'll end my my comment. Thank you. So Wow, of all the things that the jury could have seized upon. Right. Did you see that one? So it was a big question in my mind. Where was the gun last seen? When was it last in the hands, you know? We didn't really have all of that. Did she leave it in the car? Did she not have it in the car? But <clears throat> what I do see for that, for that, that's fodder for the next case. That's fodder for the next defendant. Answer this question, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't have the gun last. Right. I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. I, I, I made sure it was secure. Someone else, oh, by the way, she's the one that had the gun last. So I could see that plan B defense. Um, it's interesting. Jurors will glom on to all different types of things that you didn't see coming. And, and I think that was a, a key piece that came in that oh. she would had it last. How much do you think uh, this played a part when she was on the stand, Jennifer Crumbly on the stand, and she said she wouldn't have done anything different? Oh, you know, I would. That came, by the way, Lloyd, that came from the direct testimony of her own attorney. So her own attorney anticipated that answer because, you know, you go through all the questions. Of course, right? exactly. And uh, not that, hey, listen, I would have never given him a gun. Not that um, I, I would have taken the gun away. Not that uh, at that meeting I would have removed him from the school and got him into a counselor immediately. Not that I would have called my boss and said, I'm taking the day off. I got but a crisis. But if she here. said any of that, wouldn't that have incriminated her? Yeah, I, I think... It shows consciousness of, you know, the, the remorse. What would you turn, what would you do if you could turn back the hands of time? So the, the fact of the matter is, is that she has a conscience. Um, when she said nothing and four people are dead, oh, think mm-hmm. about how that psychology works. I just think so that her was attorney a, never should have asked the question in the first place. No, not, 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 not if that was, mm-hmm. uh, not with that being the answer, mm-hmm. because jurors don't. First of all, I think it was self-serving, all of it, a lot of it. And she lied. She she was impeached on the stand. Jurors hate that. With the timing of it, them on the run. Yep, the timing yeah. on the run and also that she took the gun away and then said, no, I didn't say that. And clearly, if you play back the, the tape, 
she she did. We're going to be talking to you for another segment, so I want to set aside for a moment what the long-range potential of this verdict sure. and the precedent-setting nature of it might be. We're going to save that for the next segment. But when you look at the, the facts that were presented here and the testimony that came in that I think from a legal strategy standpoint is questionable, the affair, the journal, um, her attorney-client privilege discussions about when and how she was going to turn herself in, does she have the grounds for an appeal on uh, insufficient defense? Ineffective assistance of counsel, a 6,500 motion. Yes. So I, I think, Guy, you're hitting all the points everybody's asking. Um, and it's clear to me that uh, there are going to be some issues, some ripe issues for that particular appeal. Um, I still trouble myself with the journal. How does that come in specifically? I wasn't there on that day of the motion, um, but <clears throat> it's hearsay. You can't cross-examine it. Um, it. And how does she have notice or knowledge of what was written in that journal? So the, there are some issues there <clears throat> that I'm sure will be uh, ripe for an appeal. Uh, the attorney-client privilege issue, I think, is significant because you got secrets there. Second, I think the fact that when she had uh, her client up on the stand and her client said, I was just following my attorney's instructions. Mm -hmm. Oh, my. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, you just made the attorney a witness, right? Was the attorney obstructing? I mean, how does that all play out? So there's some appeal uh, appellate issues that I think, um, you know, someone like a Robin Frankel are, could have a field day. Um, she's going to be sentenced in April uh, and four counts involuntary manslaughter. Manslaughter is up, up to 15 years. Right. Per count. So what could she actually see as far as a sentence? So uh, calculating the guidelines, not knowing all of the history, but just doing the guidelines in the state of Michigan, she's looking at uh, 29 to 57 months fall within the guidelines. It's not a consecutive sentence. It's a concurrent sentence. Mm -hmm. So guidelines are just advisory to a judge nowadays in Michigan um, to have a substantial and compelling reason based on factors. Could she go over those guidelines? Yes. The max she could do, if she, if she had all of the compelling reasons to do so, the judge uh, could, and a max, give two-thirds of 15. So it would be 10 to 15. Anything any term of years from up to 15. So the max would be 10. Now, mind you, the guidelines, uh, if she got the top end of the guidelines, she's basically looking at 5 to 15 because 57 months just shy of 60. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I think the prosecution is going to lay out really those compelling factors to have the uh, judge go over the guidelines. Um, and I think the defense is going to lay out the factor she's never been in trouble before. Yeah. This is um, her first go around. And time served. Yep. She gets time she served. Is. She gets the uh, she gets credit for that time. She gets credit for that time. Almost, what, two and a half years now. Coming yeah. up, if you're a parent waking up this morning, what are the main takeaways in terms of your responsibility? Did this case change the standard for negligence? Did it change the standard for due care? And if you're a gun owner, does this open the door to prosecutors using their discretion to come after gun owners in general? We'll explore that with Todd in our next segment here on JR Morning. <clears throat> Meantime, this week's XMP uh, Global Mobility Minute with Stephanie Brindley is brought to you by Dana. Dana, people finding a better way.
Recently, General Motors confirmed that it will again offer plug-in hybrid electric vehicle options in the North American market. While GM had planned to move customers straight from engines to electrics, at this point of an EV transition, buyers seem to be rewarding choice. Plug-in hybrids, or PHEVs, gained ground in 2023. Based on S&P Global Mobility U.S. light vehicle registration data from January through November 2023, registrations of PHEVs actually increased at a little faster pace than EVs. PHEV registrations grew almost 52%, reaching about 251,000 units. Over that same period, EV registrations grew about 49%, surpassing 1 million units. On a volume level, EVs are leaving PHEV in the dust. However, the increase may signal opportunity. As the industry drives to the goal of zero emissions, GM's decision and the performance of PF offerings in 2023 show that for now, consumers want options. I'm Stephanie Brindley with this week's Automotive Minute from SMB Global Mobility, formerly IHS Market. It is your choice to have a child, and you cannot choose to not take care of your child. You cannot choose to not nurture your child. You cannot choose to... Um, take your own interest over your child, especially when it comes to mental health. That's Craig Schilling, the father of Justin Schilling, one of the four victims who lost their lives in that shooting massacre at Oxford High in 2021. In that landmark case following the tragic shooting at Oxford High, Jennifer Crumbly's fate has been decided. She was found guilty on all four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Attorney Todd Flood is in studio with us to analyze this. And um, attorney, uh, what does this mean for the uh, father, James Crumbly? Does this necessarily mean that he'll be found guilty? Does it necessarily mean because of this? No, no. He has his due process rights. He's going to have his own case. And they're going to have to be hyper vigilant as it relates to getting a fair and impartial jury. That's the that's, that's going to be thing. the key, right? Yes, yeah. So uh, when you ask questions and and voir dire your your prospective jurors, you're going to definitely want to touch upon them and their prejudice and biases and what whether or not they can set those aside. We're all going to have certain ones, right? So can you set those things aside? Can you listen to the evidence and? Can you follow the law? Because the judge is going to tell you you must follow the law. Can you do that once the judge reads the instructions? Um, and it's going to be difficult because uh, people don't want to talk in front of everybody else. So you got to have the deft touch of being able to get them to open up and be honest and have candid conversations. Um, and that's a skill uh, that you you really have to have seasoned attorneys in there making sure that they're getting a fair and impartial jury. Uh, Todd, the national headline is first parent held responsible for a child's deadly rampage. Does this open the door for other cases? Does Is this a slippery slope or do you find this case just a one-off, a unique set of circumstances? Um, I, I think these facts, um, yes, it is the first time I mean, that in our country, we have held parents accountable for their child in a mass shooting. Um, it's not the first time in the state of Michigan we have held parents accountable for a child shooting another when they left their gun out or when they, um, I was just discussing earlier about having notice about, you know, a young child setting things on fire and the parents not being 
you know, reasonable and responsible and the child lights a house on fire, killing someone else and the parents being held accountable. So I, I think the the bottom line is in this case, if we really look and dive into this, this is a, uh, a eye opener for mental health. It's an eye opener for um, parenting and making sure that, you know, you're, you're on top of things to the extent that you can be a good parent. I'm not looking for Job says parents. I'm looking for parents that are responsible and that make sure they're with their children to get them help when they need it. Does Um, it change the responsibility standard? Does it change the standard for negligence? And do I have to worry about things like letting my teen leave with the car in the morning or taking, um, you know, uh, if do I have to lock the knife drawer? How far might a prosecutor now take this newfound leverage for for getting accountability? I don't think it changes the standard. I don't think it changes anything with regards to our precedents or stare decisis. I think, you you know, it all starts at home. Um, And this is Jamie's point earlier. This is the first time it is kind of a aberration, uh, you know, a one off, because I I would believe most parents in this circumstance uh, would get their child help. seeing the the demons and seeing the ugliness of what this kid was going through. Um, So I don't think it changes the standards of our law. What about guns? There are activist prosecuting attorneys in various counties around this state who are anti-gun. Could this be used as a cudgel Mm. to even even where maybe due care was taken by parents? If the kid somehow got the gun and used it, you're going to court. Sadly so, if that were the standard, if that were the case, if someone, you know, is a, a prosecutor or authority said, hey, this opens the door for me to go at it. That's an ugly situation because prosecutors are held to a very high standard of charging and uh, they can't be charging by the seat of their pants. Um, so I, I would find it um, reprehensible if that were the case. Right. Would you expect maybe some test cases like that? Nothing's out of the question, but it would be, uh, you know, really ugly if that did happen. I, I, I could imagine that guy, but, you know, for the most part, for the most part, our Prosecutors Association of Michigan, the PAM, um, they, they, this is an extraordinary case. Uh, they got a lot of media. I, I think it, the facts drove this case more than anything else. But yeah, I ask because state representatives were, you know, were uh, there was a blizzard of press releases after this, sure. and from those that are from an anti-gun perspective, mm-hmm. right. it was this serves notice. Well, that yeah. you yeah. know, sadly so. Um, hopefully, we have everything coming back to the middle, right? Of the, get rid of the extremisms. So that's well, the sad part. We, you know, this, we hope that the, this doesn't happen anywhere else, but we can't buy, be naive and say something like this doesn't happen somewhere else where a child takes a gun, goes to a school and does, you know, horrible things. Well, it happens all the time in this it, country. It, it, yeah, does. it does. In this it, particular country. It does. Yeah. And so, yeah, right. you know, if it happens again, you know, this, does this case set precedent Will people look back at this and say, okay, well, this happened here, this Woman, this woman, this man was charged here, was found guilty because X, Y, and Z. Can we use that in this case to, to you know, make it easier to convict? So I, I 
maybe easier to charge, not necessarily easier to convict. It, to Jimmy's point, it happens all over, right? We just had a child in South Carolina shoot a teacher, not right. kill, mm-hmm. and right. the parent was held responsible. That's the right. parent got two years in prison. It does happen all over the place. If you're derelict with a deadly weapon, if you're not cautious with a gun. And this child was six. Yeah, I mean, six-year-old. Six-year-old. Yeah. So yeah. think about this. This is not rocket science, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you have a deadly weapon you better be responsible. You better teach. You yeah. better, you know, I mean, this is, this to me is common sense stuff. I shouldn't have to prove water's wet, right? But that we are going to have those those people out there that have exceptions. Uh, I want to charge this or that or the other. It has to be fact-driven. Right. And, and, and we also have to have some remedy to making sure we have mental health care for people that are in this position. And parents unwilling to ignore the red flags. Todd, thanks so much for your time. Guys, thank you. Always a pleasure. And uh, we're going to help you get to it all, uh, but we are focusing and doing a deep dive into what's happening with the Jennifer Crumbly uh, convictions, four of them. And we invite your comments, too. Uh, You can text us at 1-800-859-0957, 1-800-859-0WJR. And we're looking forward to reading uh, some of your thoughts on the air. Uh, Are you worried that this resets a new standard for parental behavior? Are you worried that if you miss little warning signs that you can be dragged into court and held accountable? If there was a takeaway from our conversation with Todd and the reading that we've done thus far on this, the, the, the gross negligence comes in that you had the warning and you failed to act. So if there's a takeaway for parents, it may not be lock up the knife drawer, but if you've had warnings... Mm -hmm get help or acknowledge those and and confront them. The problem is, right now in our society, there's really no place to take your kid. That's the problem. Well, everyone's like, mental health, mental health. Okay, so say this mother said, yes, my child needs some help. Where does she go? Yeah, right now we've got emergency kids. Emergency room? Exactly. Yeah, we had more kids that were stuff. admitted into the emergency room yeah. and living there because they couldn't get transferred to a an inpatient facility or what in many cases was extreme schizophrenia or other things where, I mean, they were in crisis, nowhere to go. Chief James White talks about this all the time with the people that they've dealt with uh, out on the street. And a lot of them have gone into a hospital, you know, for maybe a week. And some of them have escaped the hospital mm. because they have escaped and got back out, you know. So there's yeah. no place that was no long term place for someone who's going through a mental crisis. No, and coming up at uh, 719, we're going to be talking with a Cooley Law professor, also a former judge, about this very idea of really how, come on, how far-reaching is this conviction? Or is this an outlier because of the flurry of red flags she ignored, her flagrant disregard for common gun safety protocols, (coughs) and just a failure to act when her son was in distress. So this is different for a parent who wakes up this morning and they've had no type of flag from their child, no type of warning from their child, and then the child may end up doing something. They wouldn't necessarily be on the hook for that, would they? There has always been no. a standard for gross negligence, and yeah. there always has been accountability. We just have not seen the circumstances that allowed it to be exercised in a mass shooting. Right. 
Karen McDonald brought this case because of the depth of just all the details that she ignored this mother. Yeah. Putting it's it in a sports contest. It's not every parent now is, who's going to end up in a court. That's right. It, it was the flagrant fouls. Yes. Yes. If you will. A flagrant it, two. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. Um, a, a number of things on the um, political front. Uh, Donald Trump learning yesterday from the Court of Appeals that his very broad definition of what he calls pr- a presidential immunity will not hold water with the Court of Appeals. And they... They swept away a lot of this. Coming up uh, at 7.35, we're going to be talking with Matthew Schneider. I mean, does this open the door, though, when you say that the president has no immunity? Well, does that not open the door to partisan attacks the moment they leave office? (laughs) January 21st, wham. Here come the civil suits. Here come the criminal indictments from the opposing party. We'll get into that with Matthew Schneider. The other thing is two notable things. Poor Nikki Haley. Um, wow. In the Nevada primary, which was a meaningless exercise because they had basically switched to a caucus system, but she was in the primary. Uh, she got 30 plus percent of the vote, but none of the above beat her badly. Not a good look as she tries to continue justifying staying in the race. And Ron Romney McDaniel, the uh, Northville resident, Michigan native, who rose to the very top of the Republican uh, National Party, has apparently agreed to step down. Uh, acknowledging that uh, she's had this relationship, fraught relationship with Donald Trump. He went on Newsmax the other day and said, yeah, it's time for her to step aside. He then walked it back on another media outlet. We've seen that before. Yeah. But she's taking the hint. Yeah. And I, I I thought he said something like that he was going to basically deal with her after this next primary, that he would be dealing with he her. He said, we'll deal with that. Yes. Yes. Huh. Uh, Interesting. So right. uh, for Ron Romney McDaniel, which I think has in a very, very, in a cauldron of chaos and controversy, has tried to do a very good job. And, you know, she's delivered uh, majorities in the House, narrow, but still delivered a, a majority in the House in spite of the tide going completely the other way in the state of Michigan and elsewhere. Uh, as, as she lays down the gavel, deserves a lot of credit, in my opinion. And we spoke with Debbie Dingle earlier. If you go to WJR.com, you can listen to her interview about what happened on Capitol Hill yesterday. Because the vote for the bipartisan immigration bill isn't going to happen. And also a one-off Israel, um, you know, sending money to Israel is not also going to happen. And they so, tried to impeach Mayorkas. And that the impi- impeachment failed, although Republicans say they will bring that back when they have um, Steve Scalise back. And at the same time, what's interesting here, one of their strongest allies in the border security debate has been the Border Patrol Union. that mm-hmm. represents these guys that go out, men and women that go out every day, uh, putting themselves in peril for the, the people that are not using legal checkpoints. And they said, this would have helped us. This would have been a useful tool. Was it perfect? Heavens no. Uh, nothing from Washington ever is. But it, they say two things. It would have closed the border today because we we reached the cap weeks ago, and two, it gave it it would have led to a decline in the amount of illegal immigration. This is Brandon Judd, head of that union. And and when you look right now, what we're currently dealing with, um, this is a slow month, and we're dealing with 6,700 apprehensions on a daily basis. What this would do is it would cap it to where we couldn't take anything more than 5,000. Now, this does not say that we're going to release 5,000 people into the United States. In fact, it's it's the exact opposite. It says that we will hold single adults in custody. Um, They will not be subject to release. Uh, And so that is a huge deterrent. That will deter an awful lot of people 
people from crossing our borders illegally. We know that the main magnet that, that people cross our borders is because they're going to be released, released into the United States. Once you stop that magnet, you will, you will stop an awful lot of people from coming. So, And he was on with Harris Faulkner yesterday who said, yeah, but what about this? And it was a House GOP talking point. He swatted one down after the other and said it would have given us the tool. It would have elevated the bar to amnesty. It would have ended catch and release. And it would have given us $20 billion for more agents, more, more judges, law, mm-hmm. more judges, <clears throat> and a greater and more flights the heck out of here. Yep. For so now this is dead. Now what? Maybe they take up HR2 and try to rejigger that, but it begs the question, do House Republicans, do Senate Republicans really want a solution if Donald Trump doesn't want one? And he's telegraphed that he is going, if, that all of them are going to be bad and that only he can deliver true immigration reform. So we, we shall see. Our skyline uh, has uh, changed a little bit, Guy. The residences at Water Square, that's a 25-story luxury apartment building standing now where the Joe Louis Arena once stood. This gleaming all-glass tower, it symbolizes Detroit's resurgence. Mayor Mike Duggan hailed it as a sign of the city's progress from bankruptcy. This parcel of land was given away to a creditor in bankruptcy in 2014. The project was built without tax breaks, union strong, and with a commitment to Detroit-based business. The Sterling Group behind the project has made a significant impact on the city's skyline and economy. Let me tell you, uh, it's not cheap, you know, but 2500 about five grand. Uh, it's not a cheap place. Yeah, but the view is great. The view is great. <laughs> I always thought the view was great walking into Joe Lewis. Well, so. yeah. I think the view is great walking into this studio every day. And, <laughs> Pretty uh, good. Yeah, and, and, and we, we're here rent-free. Yes. For well, the moment. We are. <laughs> uh, when we come back, we will talk to a, a Cooley Law School professor about just how far-reaching this crumbly verdict may be and how it will impact you as a parent if you're waking up with a teen, what teen doesn't has tr- have troubles? What concerns should you have this morning? Meantime, WJR Business Beat brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world. Here's Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to spotlight the startup community here on WJR. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, everyone. The digital advertising market appears headed on the upswing. At least it appears that way based on the most recent reporting from three of the biggest digital advertising platforms, that being Alphabet, of course, that's Google, Meta, that's Facebook and Instagram, and Amazon. Coming off of what has been a sluggish advertising market for the last couple of years, things are now starting to turn around and starting to show life. According to reporting from CNBC, Meta's fourth quarter ad sales jumped 24% year over year from this time last year to $38.7 billion, while Amazon's booming ad unit rose 27% to $14.7 billion. Meanwhile, Alphabet, still the market leader, saw its Google ad business rise 11% to $65.5 billion, boosted by 16% growth at YouTube. Of course, that's an Alphabet property. Deborah Williamson, quoted in the CNBC reporting, she's an independent analyst, told CNBC that big advertiser events like the Summer Olympics in Paris and the upcoming presidential elections will contribute to even higher spending. Insider Intelligence said in a report that global ad spending will jump 10% in 2024, up from growth of 6.3% in 2023. And while this CNBC reporting points out, we can't get too excited about these numbers just yet because the fact is one reason growth looks so strong now is because the numbers are being compared to that period of a year ago when activity in the ad space was down. 
Now, all of this activity could actually be a harbinger of challenges ahead for businesses, particularly small businesses who rely on these platforms to advertise, given that the increased demand will ultimately drive prices up to advertise on these platforms and others online. So while this is clearly good news for the digital marketing space, small businesses may be paying more to advertise in the future. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's Business Beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Business Beat is sponsored by Shelving.com. Shop from a variety of trusted brands at Shelving.com. This includes durable lion steel clip shelving cabinets, heavy-duty unirack pallet racking, and Milwaukee tools to get your facility equipped for the job at hand. Visit shelving.com to find the quality storage solutions your business needs. That's shelving.com. We rack your world. Let's talk about a great family-owned window company that I just got to know, Clarkson Window and Door. For over 36 years, Clarkson Window and Door has been providing hundreds of thousands of windows and doors to Michigan homes. Their windows are made to order. That means you go to the showroom and you pick everything from color, style, grids, and hardware. They work with North Star Windows, an American-owned company that designs windows that can stand up to the harshest winter conditions. They can handle everything Michigan has to offer. Clarkson Windows and Doors installers are experts with decades of experience. They work for the company. They don't use subcontractors. You know who you're working with and who's in your house. There are never any high-pressure sales tactics, and they offer fair and honest pricing. Financing options are available, too. And to top it off, all the windows come with a lifetime warranty. It's no surprise that Clarkson Window and Door is so highly recommended by WJR's home improvement experts, the Inside Outside Guys. Go check out their reviews online or go see them at their design showroom. I was just there. Lots of options to go through. When it's time to replace your windows, make sure you call Clarkson Window and Door. Visit ClarksonWindow.com for more information or call 248-338-6781. That's 248-338-6781. For parents, we welcome in. Jeff Swartz, he is the professor of criminal law and criminal procedure, also a former judge, uh, now teaching at Cooley Law School and a, uh, in Florida, and we welcome him to WJR Morning. Good morning, Jeff Swartz. Good morning. How are you today? We're good, Judge. Good to have you with us. Uh, just give us your first take about what should be the biggest takeaway for parents waking up with a teenager in their household this morning. I think most lawyers are recognizing that there is, excuse me, there is a a real problem with what we call persuasive precedent. This won't hold except for in the state until an appellate court approves it. This doesn't hold as mandatory. But other jurisdictions which want to pursue actions against parents to make sure they secure guns or make them responsible for their children's acts will follow up on this and you say they did it in Michigan we should be doing it here and they'll try their cases the same way under the same kind of statute do you believe this case had a unique set of circumstances though that you know she was at the school the day of the shootings the gun wasn't um, secured things like that that this was a special case I don't think this is all that special I understand that they were at the school that day I listen to the testimony and I start to wonder whether in fact they were as responsible for what happened as the school administrators were. If they were that concerned, and remember he took the stand and said at the time 
he didn't think he was dangerous. If, in fact, he was that dangerous, one has to wonder why he was put back in a classroom, why he wasn't put in basically a detention hall kind of situation until school was out, the students were gone, and then sent him home. Or why didn't they search his backpack? None of that was done by the school people. To me, that's what we call intermediate causation. That is, it intervened between what the parents failed to do and the actual shooting. I think this was very selective in the way that the prosecutor did it by going after the parents and blaming them for basically not hiding the gun well enough or not securing the gun, which they actually had no legal duty to perform. Judge, um, coming up will be James Crumbly, the father of the shooter. His trial is next month, and I know a lot of people watching the trial of Jennifer Crumbly and hearing the verdict could be possibly some future jurors for him, and I know the judge will tell them that they can't consider what happened in Jennifer Crumbly's case, but that's easier said than done. How would that affect him getting uh, a jury that uh, can be fair? Well, knowing Judge Matthews, as, as I really don't know her that well except for watching her in this case, she's going to do everything she can to find jurors for James Crumbly. Part of that will include the idea you ask the question, well, if you have a preconceived notion of the guilt of this man and or you have knowledge of this case, can you set all of that aside and judge the case solely on the evidence that you hear in this courtroom? That's the key question. And if they answer yes, then they're still qualified to be a juror. That doesn't mean that they can't be stricken by the defense for whatever reasons they can find. But the truth of the matter is it's going to be hard to find a jury in Oakland County or anywhere in the Detroit area for that matter. So could they, if in fact, so could they have a change of venue? Could they ask for a change of venue? Yeah, that's where I was going. Um, The truth of the matter is that if it happens that they cannot find a jury, then they have to go somewhere into some metropolitan area that has the same kind of demographics as Oakland County. And that most likely would be Grand Rapids or possibly Traverse City. That's the way that I, I, there's just no place else for them to go in the lower peninsula. You said a moment ago, and it, it really hit me, you said securing the gun, they had no legal duty to do that. Really? Because the jury, at least the jury forewoman, seems to be suggesting otherwise, saying that the last adult that was in possession of that gun, that they determined that they did bear a responsibility to secure it better. Well, there is no legal duty. We're talking what she's talking about, and what other people consider a legal duty is one that they just think they should have done on a moral basis or any other kind of basis. But there was no legal duty. There is now. There is a statute mm-hmm. in Michigan that creates that legal duty. Takes effect before Tuesday. Before that, there. What was that again? Takes effect Tuesday. Yeah. So you have that statute now, and the fact of the matter is that 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 did not exist before. And so they are thinking of legal duty in the terms of, you know, securing the gun is something you should do. Well, that's an opinion. It wasn't, a, it, it, it didn't affect this case. They had to go to the other theory that somehow they were negligent and try to, and try to attach a negligence for not doing it. And that's the dangerous precedent that's being set here, mm-hmm. not establishing a legal obligation but saying it's negligence if you don't take that step. And you even brought out earlier, do you secure your knives? Do you secure your baseball bats? 
Do you do anything that can be used as a weapon? And how closely do you watch your children? And at the first sign of something, do you run off to a psychologist trying to find out, is my kid descending into becoming a mass murderer? I mean, parents are, are really going to be, should be shaken up by this as to how they have, do they have to be helicopter parents that watch every little thing their children do in a discerning eye? I'm not sure that that's going to work out very well. We have like 10 seconds. Do you think politics will play a role in prosecutors who are anti-gun? It will, as it did in this case. There's no question that Ms. McDonald, in my opinion, is going to run for governor of the state of Michigan in two years. Interesting. And that that was part of her motivation beyond just a quest for justice. Professor Swartz, thank you for your time. 64% of Americans say it is essential or at least important that they get a verdict in the election trial against Donald Trump for meddling in the uh, 2020 election, that that verdict be rendered before they go to the polls. The question of the timing is part of what happened yesterday as a court of appeals rebuffed the former president's attempts to declare very broad presidential immunity, basically saying you are now citizen Trump, and in citizen Trump, you can be charged. And they really offered very little support for any limitation uh, on that ability to charge. An interesting conclusion that could be uh, very uh, consequential. Matthew Schneider is leader of investigations in white-collar defense. At Honigman Law, also a former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Matthew, good morning. Good morning, guys. Thank you for having me back. They basically said, sorry, you're a citizen now. All bets are off when it comes to immunity. Were you surprised that they, I understand that some of his claims were broad, maybe even nonsensical, but are you surprised that their rejection was so broad itself? Not necessarily, because as you indicate, some of his claims really were so broad The Supreme Court has already decided some of this. For example, he argued, I'm immune from prosecution because of separation of powers. You just can't have the court branch going after the presidential branch. Well, look, that's happened so many times in the past. If you just, you know, look back at President Truman, he tried to seize the steel mills in the Korean War. The Supreme Court said, you can't do that. And that set up a whole line of cases saying that presidents do have authority, but their authority is not unlimited. So when the Court of Appeals in D.C. decided this case, they built upon some of those building blocks in their decision. So it's not entirely alarming because we've seen these cases similar to this in the past. You know, Matthew, this uh, prosecution basically has been kind of frozen for weeks, you know, as the court considered, you know, the appeal. And now Trump's team is vowing to appeal, which could really postpone the case by even weeks or months, uh, particularly if this if the uh, Supreme Court agrees to take it up. That's true. And so all, all those people who are watching this eagerly, hoping that this will all be resolved before the election, you've got another thing coming because that <laughs> seems very unlikely now. He'll, he'll seek a, a appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Supreme Court will have to decide whether or not to take it. There'll be a further delay in arguments if they do. So it just gets strung out a little bit further. Matthew, so the options are the Supreme Court could not take it up at all. Isn't that an option? 
Yes, absolutely. But if they do, then this would be uh, this would be stayed. This ruling would stay in place, and then you have to still determine whether or not there's enough time to try the case. That would be up to the district court. And the Supremes could say well, we're going to consider it, just not in this court session, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Yes, that's always the danger. Whenever you appeal, you're at the mercy then of the court's timeline and their docket and their agenda. And this isn't the only thing on their agenda. They've got other cases. So that does cause an issue for the Trump campaign to consider. This Court of Appeals panel uh, included a Republican appointed uh, judge. um, And they said this. The risk that former presidents will be unduly harassed by meritless federal criminal prosecution appears slight. To a lot of Republicans, and I think maybe even some Democrats, they would say, we've seen the tit for tat when it comes to impeachment. We've seen our laws and our courts be used for partisan political attacks. Are they a little cavalier and totally dismissing this prospect? I think so, because it is a risk, certainly. And this is exactly what President Trump argued in this case. He said, look, if you do this, you're going to open the floodgates to every president when they leave office for any criminal prosecution. And he's already made these arguments about rogue prosecutors in Georgia and elsewhere. So what the what the Court of Appeals said is, look, I, I understand that, but our country is almost 250 years old, and this has never happened in the past. It's not like it couldn't have. It could have happened in the past. It just hasn't. So the risk is low, and you still have these other protections of the criminal justice system. You can still make these arguments in court. Trump has done that. He hasn't been successful, but it's not like this takes away those abilities to, to argue in court. He still has that option. Matthew, if if Trump were to beat Biden in November, could he presumably try to use his position as the head of the executive branch to order a new attorney general to, to dismiss the federal cases against him? Absolutely. Once you become the president, you're effectively then the head of the Justice Department. And you could stop this case in its tracks. And that that actually happens all the time when new administrations come in, they switch immigration policy, they, they change their positions on environmental cases, and they halt those cases in the Justice Department. So that wouldn't be uh, impossible. In fact, it, it, it does happen. And knowing President Trump and what he said, mm-hmm. I think that would be very likely. Um, These judges are saying, though, we can't not have a check on the executive. They can't have carte blanche to violate rights of citizens and not have their votes count. Right, exactly. And and that's what they're saying. But again, we we still have routes here. This case is not done. We still have a possible appeal in this particular case. We have arguments on the other side in briefing, so it remains to be seen exactly how that's going to shake out. Do you think the justices in this case, and they're, they're trying to battle this perception that they've become politicized, if, if they acquiesce to Jack Smith's desire to get this underway before the election, they look politicized. If they put it off, they look politicized. How much of a, a factor will that play in their decision-making on whether to take this up? Uh, they're already going to be viewed as being political one way or the other if they grant the case. So I don't think that matters in their decision-making at this time. It is a factor in their consideration if they, if they hear it. 
Because then if you're the chief justice, if you're John Roberts, your chief mission is try to get an opinion that is not a partisan split because that will just cause the American people to be so distrustful of the Supreme Court. That's probably what he'll try to do, try to decide the case on other grounds or find some common ground among the justices to prevent that from happening. Interesting. There, there is this case that we've heard about. We've only got a couple of minutes left here. Nixon versus Fitzgerald, which was a civil case. But the Supreme Court said that the president has absolute immunity from for official acts. Is getting involved in the counting of electoral votes, is that an official act? Is that also an important decision that need that we need clarity on from the Supreme Court? That is an official act for the vice president. That's the vice president's job under the Constitution to go to the Congress and certify the electoral vote. But presidents ask, ask vice presidents to carry their water on legislative matters all the time, right? But not when it's specifically enumerated in the Constitution. The Constitution says this is the vice president's job. It doesn't say it's the president's job. So that's the problem there. And this whole issue about civil immunity, that hasn't changed at all. This opinion doesn't change the fact that former presidents, once they leave office, they can't be um, uh, attacked civilly for their official acts as president. All of that area of the law is still intact, regardless of this opinion from the D.C. Court of Appeals. Okay, Matthew, in the spirit of the, uh, the Super Bowl, what would the prop bet be on this? Would you lay money that the Supreme Court takes this up within the next two months? I don't, but I do think they'll take up that Colorado case because they're going to hear that on Thursday. They're taking oral arguments, so we know that for sure. This one seems a little unlikely, but look, I'm a lawyer. I've been wrong in the past. We'll be wrong in the future. We we just don't know. You think SCOTUS will maybe kick this back or not weigh in? I, I think if they do weigh in, which I think they probably will, that still is not going to make it so that the trial takes place before the election because there are so many other steps that take place in addition to the Supreme Court arguments in in the district court. I I just don't think it can be done before the election day. Okay. And, yes, that Colorado case about whether or not the 14th Amendment can bounce him off ballots will be pivotal. And I got a feeling you're going to be on Nick's dance card on Thursday, Matthew, just going to – uh, uh, weigh in on that now. So we'll wait for those oral arguments. Perhaps we'll talk Friday. There's a lot to talk about. I'll be happy to be back and explain both sides of the issue. And we love that about you. Matthew Schneider, take care. Thank you. When we come back, the other headlines making uh, news of this day, including who are the best performing cities when it comes to job growth. Michigan, not such a great grade. Next on JR Morning. We are absolutely thrilled, Gail and I, to extend an invitation to you to do something that the WJR Travel Club has never done. We're going to Asia, and there is such a mystique around Southeast Asia. There are parts of it that are so ancient. The Buddhist traditions are so interesting. The cuisine is fascinating. And we're going to explore all those mysteries and all that ancient history when we get on our very own riverboat with you and all our other WJR listeners that sign up and depart for a 13-day immersive experience taking us up the Mekong River on our own private luxury 
Riverboat. It starts in Ho Chi Minh City, formerly known as Saigon, and we move on from there. The brochure blew our minds, frankly, and the pictures are make you just whet your appetite for more. Uh, by all means, visit WJRTravelClub.com. See what the trip holds, and we hope that you will come with Gail and I to experience this together. Being together with WJR listeners is one of the best parts. The second best part is we get the boat to ourselves. We know that there's limited space. We expect it to fill quickly. So consider it, check it out at WJR Travel Club, and then secure your spot for this epic journey. Join Gail and I for what will be a wonderful adventure. Welcome back to JR Morning. And we've had so many um, pressing topics to discuss that we haven't gotten to the sports realm. But I just wanted to talk yeah. about this Alex Anzalone, yes. athle- oh, not athletic piece, piece, a player's tribune piece. This is where the guys go on and write in their own words, mm-hmm. whatever they're feeling. And the title is To the City of Detroit. And it starts with Dear Detroit. We are all behind Dan on the fourth down call. Let's get that out of the way first. <laughs> because I tell you what, that, Lloyd, that's been litigated on Sports Talk Radio still yes. to this day. And, and litigated at kitchen tables. Of course. As well. And um, Anzalone says in the piece, I feel like if you shy away from your identity in that moment, then you're betraying the very thing that got you there. So all the guys were into it. So let's get that out of the way. Then he starts talking about this has been a tough Uh, time right after they lost the NFC championship game, not just for fans, but for him himself. Like when he's home with his kids thinking about it, his little toddler saying, daddy, are you going to the Super Bowl?" And that was a gut punch for him. So he goes into some of his family life and kudos to them. They talk about a miscarriage that they had. And I think it's really great that people talk about it because this happens in the world and, and getting women and families the support they need. So I like that you talked about that too. Then you get to the very end, which is my favorite part. Um, You get into the playoffs. He says the wild card game, Stafford and the Rams coming into Ford field with all the buzz around them. Pundits picking against us, thinking would blow it running out of the tunnel with three fractured ribs, feeling absolutely no pain. Oh my. Wow. (laughs) Oh my. So there's that. The very definition of toughness. It is. Uh, then he says, great to have you back, Coach Ben and Coach AG. So thanks for the coordinators for returning. Then at the very end, they start talking about, are they going to watch the Super Bowl? I mean, fans have this feeling, too. Are you guys going to watch it? Like, oh, no. who, has, who yeah, cares? It's like leftovers after a not particularly tasteful dinner. Right. I mean, just it's <laughs> right? so upsetting. Like a little indigestion. Yeah. A little indigestion yeah. there. I st- I st- <laughs> well, Anzalone says Dan Campbell said to him, no, you got to watch it, man. Use every second of it as motivation. I'm sure he'll be watching. I can't help but have this image of Dan sitting in a dark room this Sunday all by himself, gripping his coffee cup for three hours straight, staring daggers at the TV, just counting down the milliseconds until training camp starts and we can run it back. And here's the end. You're going to have 53 dogs out there doing the exact same. You're going to have a whole coaching staff doing the same. You're going to have a whole city doing the same. This year, it sucks. Next year, it's us. Believe, Alex. Man, what a way to end that. I just got chills. (laughs) I'm ready to run through a wall. With broken ribs. Yeah. 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 Honest. I mean, bruised ribs are one thing. Broken? I will say Alex is always a guy in the locker room who will talk. Even if it's not his day to talk, he'll mm-hmm, talk. Mm-hmm. We really, in the media, enjoy him. He he was great for the Lions this year. He he uh, uh, just, it's how we all feel yeah. right now. So that was nice to read. So if you get a chance, go to the Players' Tribune. 
and click on To the City of Detroit. All right. Uh, If you're talking about letters, perhaps the uh, various sports betting franchises around here should send a thank you letter to all the Lions because an amazing, the state's football and sports betting uh, bonanza uh, topped $600 million in December alone. That sets a record. And... uh, it you can watch it just began spiking in September, and and then in, and it kept going up to uh, November and December, close to six hundred million dollars of people investing. Yes, yes, investing in the Lions. <laughs> it's for entertainment, yes. guys. Meantime, I got to tell you, this story yesterday scared the bejeepers out of me. I enjoy watching sports live on broadcast television. Perhaps that's old school, but yesterday. An 800-pound gorilla was created. Walt Disney's ESPN, Fox, and Warner Brothers Discovery have a joint sports streaming service that they're launching this fall. For sports fans, boy, that's that's a that's huge. troika that could could spend a lot of money to lock up a lot of rights to mm-hmm. a lot of stuff we want to watch that we won't be able to unless we sign up and subscribe. Well, there'll be a bundle. Uh, skinnier than linear networks. You mean other than a bundle of money? (laughs) That's right. But you know we're all going to pay for this. I mean, it's going to be a newly formed company with its own leadership. Doesn't have a name or a price yet, but it's Disney, Fox, Warner Brothers. Wow. I mean... You're hitting all the corners, man. You're hitting all the corners. And they're saying, look, this is going to be specifically tailored for sports fans. And so maybe if you've already got the Disney Plus Hulu Max bundle, this will just be a little bump. And I guess if you're cutting the cord and, you know, which is the, that's the majority of your expenses for sports anyway, this is a way for the sportsies to offload that and cut the cord. We'll be oh. back. On count one of involuntary manslaughter, as to Madison Baldwin, guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count two of involuntary manslaughter in regards to Tate Muir, guilty of involuntary manslaughter. On count three, as to involuntary manslaughter regarding Hannah Hanna St. Juliana, guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And in count four of involuntary manslaughter against Justin Schilling, guilty of involuntary manslaughter. Don't know about you guys, but it did my heart good to tie the victims into the conviction so that their names are in no way forgotten. In this process. Yeah, I mean, that's why we're all here. Two or four lives that were promising. And um, Justin Schilling's dad said he loved life. He deserved to live it. And that's how I feel. Yeah. And and, and I also I was struck by uh, Steve St. Juliana, Hannah's uh, father, who just said, thanks to the jury for showing us common sense. And I think the, 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 the unsaid portion of that is because there was no common sense on display by Anybody on November 30th, or it seems it was certainly in short supply. And Craig Schilling, who was the father of uh, Justin Schilling, said there has to be some kind of accountability with parents concerning their child. It is your choice to have a child, and you cannot choose to not take care of your child. You cannot choose to not nurture your child. You cannot choose to um, take your own interest over your child especially when it comes to mental health. Apparently, there, at the start of deliberations, there were intense deliberations. And one of the things we've learned, and uh, the Today Show just had an exclusive interview with the jury forewoman, a Alex. woman named Alex, mm-hmm. and for her own personal protection, uh, they're not divulging her last name, but this was an exclusive on Today. And, 
answering what a lot of us have been wondering was, was there any one piece of evidence that led to these four convictions? Or was it a number of different, did, did jurors just find different paths to the same conclusion? What was the evidence that swayed you in the end? You said it wasn't an easy decision. This wasn't a slam dunk. Not easy at all. Um, So speaking for myself, I know that each individual juror had their own opinion. This did this for one person. This convinced the other. For me, um, I just feel like Jennifer didn't separate her son from the gun enough to saved those lives that day that more was required of Mm -hmm. her and this is something we talked about with todd flood if you want to listen on wjr.com to everything he had to say this morning in two different segments yes um was the statement that jennifer made on the stand that no she wouldn't do anything differently and here's the forewoman on on their opinion on that you talked about uh, her testimony there was a point where she was asked would you have done anything differently and she said she wouldn't have How did that strike you and the other jurors? It was repeated a lot in the deliberation room. I think that it was very upsetting to hear. Um, I think that there are many small things that could have been done to prevent this. So that really resonated with the jury, as it did with us. I remember the next morning talking about it. How can you say you wouldn't do anything differently when four kids were murdered? Exactly. And and as we talked about as well, if she said she would do something different, would that just kind of incriminate her? But as Todd Flood said, you know, it, it shows some compassion. It shows, you know, that you care. And here's the thing. The attorney knew what the answer was going to be. This was very rehearsed. Yes. She went over this ground well with her client. So she knew what the answer was going to be. She should have never asked, asked that it. question. Yeah. Now, she was on the stand and cross-examined by the prosecution. It could have been asked then. We yeah. won't know now because it was asked by the defense attorney herself. Right. She she just sounds so dismissive. At one point in the interview with the Today Show, and we weren't able to spin this around, uh, there was a question about, um, you know, should she have taken the stand? And the Alex said, well, she certainly at times didn't appear to, to help herself but we'll never know, mm-hmm. you know, if that would have made a difference. Um, because there were other parts where she, you know, uh, she was able to at least put a more benign spin on those things that the prosecution had made nefarious. I, you know, and I wonder, and I, I don't know if they asked this, but I wonder how they felt about just her demeanor on the stand. Yeah. You know, how, how that af- affected the jury. Well, and we know that it affected... The family members. It did. Uh, that especially that question about, do you have any regrets? Um, Mr. Schilling said, I-, I just was so offended by that. You're telling me there's nothing that you would have done. And, you know, here's the problem. If you, you ask the question so that she can avoid making an admission, but then you just look tone deaf and, uh-huh. and right. Um, the real question for parents today is... How will they? We've we've heard over and over again. This is precedent setting, and I think there's a certain amount of journalistic overhype for that. Quite frankly, yes, it's the first time this was used in a mass shooting, but we have held parents accountable for a lack of due diligence and a lack of responsibility in house fires, mm-hmm. in, in shootings, in shootings. Certainly here in Detroit, when uh, we, yes. Kim Worthy has yeah, given no babies, babies. yeah. Um, <laughs> so <clears throat> I don't know how much it extends. 
the parental umbrella of responsibility. Um, but for those that have a political agenda, we did talk with a Cooley Law professor, Jeffrey Swartz, who said, yeah, those that want to f- uh, bring forward a political agenda, well, they could do that. This could have, it depends on the prosecutors and the place where they're working and what the community wants. Uh, they have the ability now to use this as a kind of persuasive precedent to say, we need to do the same thing here. This is going to be really anti-gun people who are going to move forward with this kind of thing to place more onus on gun owners to be more careful with their guns. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I think most responsible gun owners would say, we'll accept that responsibility. The problem becomes is it, that we've already seen lawmakers on the left say, well, we're going to make sure we're going to take this to task. Well, at that point, at what point does it become harassment? Mm-hmm. No system is foolproof. Kids are also can be really, really sinister in the way they get around barriers that are put up by their parents. So, yes, again, I think most gun owners would say certainly. But if you're going to go start going after uh, parents just because you want to depress gun sales, mm-hmm. that's something different. I think that's premature, it the is. day yeah. after the general crumbly. Yeah, I, I can right. tell you, though, when you see some of the press releases that have been sent out. But it's getting state, started. State reps, started already. There is that. It, it sounds like there are releases from every town, um, the, the anti-gun group. Um, so we'll see. Yeah, and you're right. I could be overreacting just as badly on <laughs> the other side. That media guy just overreacting. <laughs> that guy, Gordon. Uh, we, we will see, though. I just I never underestimate the ability for, for politicians for to politicize, politicize yeah. these things. Um, the bottom line is nobody was a winner yesterday. I do think that there is a a message and a big takeaway that. You can't ignore the the signals your children are sending to you. And if you think that they're in deep trouble, if they've complained about bullying and if they're in any way have said, boy, I'd really like to get that guy, Mm -hmm. you need to pay attention to it. 100% and lock up your deadly weapon. Lock up that weapon. Yeah. Behave responsibly. Um, When we come back, we were discussing the other day a nationwide study showing we're doing a crummy job here in the state of Michigan in overcoming learning loss. That in some cases, the average is just 1% increase in, in, in uh, math and no increase in reading. So where does that leave us? Well, there is one district that kind of outperformed the state average. Mm-hmm. And it's the Detroit district. We'll hear from the superintendent on how they did it next on JR Morning at 819. The news of the day, of course, is the guilty verdict for Jennifer Krungbly on four counts of involuntary manslaughter. We've been getting the opinions of legal minds throughout the morning. We had Todd Flood. We had Jeffrey Swartz. All of those will be on WJR.com if you want to hear from them. Let's bring in Echo Yanka, Associate Dean for Faculty and Research and the Thomas M. Cooley Professor of Law at the University of Michigan. Uh, sir, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I saw uh, some of your quotes in the New York Times. Uh, you think parents may be thinking, if I have a troubled kid, I'm doing my best. At what point is his or her behavior no longer my responsibility? Yeah, I mean, look, I think like everybody who's seen this case, the facts are so troubling and so damning. And I completely understand why a prosecutor would want to prosecute this case. Um, my heart goes out to the families, and I frankly don't know how I would have voted in the jury box. But I do think the life of the law is precedent. And once you have a precedent out there that a child can be responsible or a parent can be responsible for a child's acts, 
the next prosecutor is going to push that example and push the next example. And, um, you know, it might be a parent whose child is involved in gang violence and leaves a gun, you know, the old child old enough to know where to get the family gun, or maybe your child um, is struggling with drugs and alcohol, for example. And, you know, did you secure the car? Um, those examples are further away. I'm not saying they're the exact same, but, um, you know, cases start in one place and prosecutors use the legal tools to push to the next. Professor, is, is this case about uh, a, a kid who has given warning signs to the parents and the parents have ignored them and then goes out and commits this heinous crime and now the parent is, uh, you know, charged with involuntary manslaughter? Yeah, I mean, we look, the facts of this case, like I said, if so, there's a legal principle that you're never responsible for somebody else's actions. But if I wanted to test that principle on an exam, you couldn't be more um, strained. You couldn't be more uh, torn than where the parents buy the gun for the child, where the parents ignore the child's deteriorating mental health, the child's explicit calls for therapy, uh, the parents ignore the child's Googling um, after ammunition, the, mm-hmm. the parents ignore the child drawing pictures of causing death in the school. Indeed, the parents are called to the school that day and asked if they want to take the child home. Uh, and in most damning, the parents do not tell the school officials that he's in possession of a loaded gun. So I'm not saying that um, every case is going to look like this. Um, as I say, I, I'm torn myself. Mm-hmm. Um, these are extraordinary facts, but um, but, you know, if you think about criminal law and you watch the law evolve, you're always going to be concerned about what the next case looks like. So the evolution, you would expect tests on this. I guess my question is, we, we've always had the, the gross negligence standard. We've had the reasonable yeah. care standard. How much cool. does the Crumbly case expand those standards or, or does it? I think it does. Um you know, it's one thing to be held grossly negligent for a child's injury. The classic case would be, for example, a parent who leaves a loaded gun around and the child injures themselves, right? And, of course, if, a, if the one place where you can be responsible for someone else's actions is, is if they are legally irresponsible. So if I leave a loaded gun around and my four-year-old shoots you, well, I'm responsible because a four-year-old is not, you know, an actor in the legal world, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're really almost a baby. Um, the other rare, more exotic case would be I leave a gun around and then an insane person shoots you, right? Again, they're not legally responsible. How about a lighter when it, with a toddler that you know is obsessed with fire? Exactly, exactly. But the reason this case is extraordinary is because, keep in mind, she's not being held negligent for something somebody kind of, so to speak, accidentally did or somebody with no agency did. She's not even being held responsible for leaving, say, a lighter around and somebody burns themselves. She's being held responsible for somebody, a young adult, to be clear, and I think looming in the background, his mental health difficulties matter, but somebody who's old enough to take purposeful action. And she's being held for the people he killed, right? So that is legally a really significant step forward that she's not just responsible, for example, for child neglect, but for involuntary manslaughter. Professor, how does this affect uh, James Crumbly, her husband's trial that comes up next month? Does this help or hurt his case uh, when he goes on trial next month? I mean, look, so every case has a different jury, and in that sense is different. But nobody's 
uh, outside of the the parents who've lost children and had injured children. Nobody's got to be more uh, devastated by this ruling than James Crumley. It's, you know, the facts are as close as can be. Um, if you're his legal team, this is obviously a, a real a devastating blow. Um, this is pure speculation on my part, but I'll be interested to see if the, the James Crumley team decides to go forward or whether they think they can get a plea bargain at this late mm. date. Um, this is, you know, for them, this is a really, really bad day. Um, now, some of your listeners will remember that um, these two are going to be tried together. And it was only at the last minute that they decided to separate their cases. And again, this is informed, uh, or excuse me, educated speculation, but speculation. Surely they decided somewhere along the line that each of them thought the other had facts that were more damning individually than together, right? So you heard her argue he was the one who bought the gun. He was in charge of locking it mm-hmm. up. And I presume that his legal strategy will have some of the same. But um, And maybe they think now that she's been convicted, it's easier to what lawyers call blame the empty chair. Um, but this was a bad day for his legal team. Um, just about a minute left, but I, I read an article that this could further prosecutors accepting plea bargains and getting more pleas instead of getting to court and this being public like this crumbly trial. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that's really important that, um, you know, we naturally care about the most spectacular cases, the cases that get on the radio and are on TV. Um, but most of our most of our criminal law system is a plea bargain system. Most of it happens kind of quietly in the shadows. And now prosecutors will have one more tool to say to somebody, I know you think this is a legal principle. I know your lawyers told you nobody gets convicted this way, but I have a conviction. You can take this three years or I will prosecute this case and I'm going for 15 or 30 or 50. Um, And those cases will plea out without any of the fanfare. Uh, I think this discussion will continue as we move forward here in classrooms like yours, sir, and uh, classrooms like ours here on the radio. And courtrooms where these things will be Exactly. Thank you for your time. Echo Yanka, Associate Dean for Faculty and Research and a professor at University of Michigan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, Coming up, the brand new Michigan State football coach on National Signing Day. Well, that's appropriate music for this segment. Uh, In November, Jonathan Smith was named the 26th head football coach at MSU. Since then, he's rounded out his staff, and he's already gotten dozens of transfers to commit, including two quarterbacks, sophomore Aiden Childs from Oregon State and Tommy Schuster, who played 45 games in four seasons at North Dakota. What's next, especially today on National Signing Day? John and I are ready to sign. You play that music. (laughs) Put them in, Coach. (laughs) Good morning, Jonathan Smith. Welcome to Michigan. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. A lot going on, but excited to to be here and, and join you guys. My question, of course, on a day like today is recruiting and and signing and things like that. Um, Do you have connections and relationships to staff and people in this area who can recruit at Michigan, at this state and Ohio? And it seems like that's when Michigan State is at its best, when they have the local players. Right. You know, that was some of the logic on completing the staff, getting some assistant coaches that do have roots, ties to this area, the Big Ten country, the Midwest, Michigan. Uh, Ohio, and so we did that in uh, when hiring the staff, and and also understood where we were coming from. I do did not have deep roots, and so we dove into that starting in December and through January, traveling around this state into Ohio, over in 
to Chicago, kind of a three, four-hour drive radius. We mm-hmm. wanted to begin those relationships, and I've been impressed with high school coaching, uh, the amount of players. There's a lot of talent in those areas, and so we want to start kind of from the inside out building this roster. Perfect. Let's bring in WGJR senior sports analyst Steve Courtney. Steve has covered the Spartans for a long time. Yes, indeed, Jamie. Thank you very much, Coach. A pleasure talking to you and uh, looking forward to uh, hanging out. Meanwhile, uh, on this recruiting day, we should point out that uh, you and your staff brought aboard 18 players uh, out of high school in the early signing period last December, not to mention a dozen players or so via the transfer portal. Uh, it's been said, Coach, that because of the transfer portal, and we just don't have time to get into everything there, that the emphasis on high school recruiting has gone down. Do you agree with that or no? You know, I think the the total numbers has gone down because you don't you got limited space, and the, if you take a player – that's out of the transfer portal. That's one less player you're going to be able to take out of the high school ranks. We have not de-emphasized it. We still want to emphasize um, young, good players that are coming out of high school and build a program that way. Um, again, we added, I think, with today, 20 high school players over the last two signing dates, and so we still want to have a heavy amount at the high school ranks and, and develop these guys over their four years here at Michigan State. Coach, it's great to have you here. On National Signing Day, I guess I've got a question just as a fan, is how much that signature really means in an era where we've got the portal and NIL. How do you assess the depth of the commitment of these signees? Yeah, it's an interesting time. There's no question. You've got to be able to kind of navigate. I do think I'm confident that we want to have a program where guys feel like they're coming in, they've got opportunity, they're developing, they're being treated well, they're competing at the highest level, and at a great place to go to school, and so there's a lot of good. And we're trying to create the experience they have here is something that they're not going to want to leave. Um, again, these guys got options um, to be able to explore uh, and try something new, but we're trying to make our option really, really good, and they want to stay here. Coach, you know, unless you've been a, under a rock, everybody knows about the distractions from last season. How do you get the players ready uh, to have their – to be in the right mindset for this uh, upcoming season. Yeah, I think we come in with, you know, you got fresh faces. This is a fresh start uh, for everybody. And uh, what took place before, we're really not concerned about. We're really concerned about what we're doing now and moving forward. It's been a great, really, month. This month of January, having our guys in this brand-new building. They're working hard in the weight room. Uh, got a new new setup in regards to even the strength side of it, coaching side of it, uh, diving into new schemes on offense, defense, special teams. It's a fresh start. And so, uh, yeah, we're building to get for, ready for uh, a season coming this fall, uh, not really spending a lot of time dwelling on what took place before. You know, it's interesting, Coach, um, as you uh, assess the situation uh, moving forward again uh, in this period of uh, – change in college athletics it was nice to see the likes of Simeon Barrow, Gino Vandemark, Jerron Glover and up on that D-line Maverick Hansen buying into uh, you and the incredible staff that you assembled as a matter of fact you go as far as to uh, maintain a couple of former Spartans wide receivers coach Courtney Hawkins and you bring aboard uh, for the uh, cornerbacks Demetrius Martin also a former Spartan so there is a wonderful mix there of familiarity if I can throw that out there. Yeah, we like the blend of how the staff came together. Like you mentioned, the two guys that have you know played here and know this place and care deeply about this place. With you know, Coach Hawkins was here, did a lot of good things um, with the receiver group the last four years. I'm excited for him being 
wanting to, to stay on board. Demetrius I've known for a long time uh, and yet played here and competed against this guy for the last couple of decades, really, at different uh, schools, does a great job on the corners end. And then we got a few guys that have Big Ten ties of coordinating. Joe Rossi was in the Big Ten in Minnesota, did a phenomenal job the last five, six years. Fortunate to bring him over. Chad Wilt was defensive coordinator in Indiana the last couple of years, been at Minnesota with Rossi before, so there's some connections there. And then obviously I've got a, a crew, uh, deeply rooted relationships that have been with me that came on over. So I think we have a nice blend staff-wise, good men that uh, are elite coaches but elite people. And I, going back to the guys that ended up staying player-wise, I think they began to feel that there's a, a lot of good things here with this staff and opportunity, and we're excited about uh, those guys staying on board. You were uh, brought aboard uh, Michigan State on the banks of the Red Cedar back on November 25th. Coach, uh, it's a little more than two months ago. It, it, it's had to have been a whirlwind experience for you, your wife, Candace, your three beautiful ch- children, Robert, Bella, and Charles. Uh, everybody settled? Uh, getting there. Uh, getting there. We're hopeful in the next <laughs> month they'll be, uh, uh, they'll be over on this, this side. Uh, but it has been a lot going on. They're really excited. They were out here last weekend exploring the town again, getting around some schools. And, and so we're getting more and more settled. And I'm not alone here. we got a bunch of coaches similar uh, set up of finding a place to live, getting the kids over. We're about halfway. Some of the staff got the family here. Some of them get a spring breaks at the end of this month. And I think we're, a lot of them are targeted to have the family over then, and I'm the same. Is there a better tour guide or welcome committee than Tom Izzo? <laughs> he has been great. I will, tell, I will tell you, you know, you talk about a football fan. and just been really welcoming, you know, learning the ropes, a guy you can lean on in regards to just asking questions on the recruiting, on the school, on the setup. Um, obviously he's, uh, been and knows this place deeply, uh, but he's been ultra welcoming to me, my family, the staff, and I uh, plan on continuing to lean on him, uh, as we move forward. Well, coach, I know that uh, there's a Spartan in my house and he's very excited about you turning some things around there in East Lansing. So welcome. We're excited for the fall. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. And thank you too to senior sports analyst, Steve Courtney. All right. Thank you, Coach. Thank you, Jamie. By the way, uh, we get a chance to see uh, what Coach Smith and his staff are up to for the first time. The Spring Showcase going on in EL on April 20th. And the conversation with a good coach brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Uh, Hopefully the W's continue to stack up for the winged wheelers. They continue their push to the postseason on Saturday. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their TrueView inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Folks. Thank you, Steve. And we're not done on JR Morning. We have Dr. Nikolai Vitti in studio, superintendent of Detroit Public Schools Community District. That's next. Despite the challenges of the pandemic, the Detroit Public Schools Community District has been making waves with its post-pandemic recovery efforts. And get this, they're outperforming national trends in reading and math. That's according to the Educational Recovery Scorecard, a collaborative study from Stanford University and Harvard University. Joining us to talk about this great news and what it means for the students and educators is Dr. Nikolai Vitti. He's superintendent of the Detroit Public Schools Community District. Dr. Vitti, welcome back to JR Morning. Well, thank you. Great to be here and uh, obviously great to talk about this. You know, with so many other districts in Michigan and across the country still lagging behind in pre-pandemic learning, what do you attribute uh, this district's greatness to? Uh, none of this is by chance. Um, this is uh, intentionality, uh, focus, and strategy. You know, before the pandemic, 
We're seeing improvement in student achievement. Uh, we're implementing what research says we should have been. You know, very aggressive on the reform, very um, strategic with the curriculum we're using, the professional development, staff changes. I mean, we've made almost 80% changes of our principals. We've uh, been nearly fully staffed with teachers. Um, and uh, we pivoted from the pandemic, I think, faster than most large urban school districts and even suburban districts. So we were already doing the right thing. And I think we pivoted with intentionality after the pandemic. And I was very clear that uh, the pandemic impact was real. Uh, it exacerbated some of the uh, consequences of concentrated poverty. But I said, we can't make excuses. We have to show improvement. Our kids need that more than ever. Uh, and uh, our principals, our teachers, our support staff responded. And the data speaks to the reform, but the intentionality and the willingness to overcome the ne- the ne- the real issues of the pandemic, unlike other districts throughout the country. So I'm I'm extremely proud. You know, I, I often use the analogy of the Lions uh, with uh, with our team, and I said uh, we are an improved team. Uh, we made the playoffs. Now it's time to you know go on to the Super Bowl and win. And our, my goal and our goal is to be the best largest urban school district in the country. And this data, you know, independent national study shows that we are the one of the highest improved large urban school districts in the country and now com- you know getting in a better situation with uh, suburban districts and and that's what our kids deserve you know I've I've said on and on and on we don't have a talent problem in Detroit we have an opportunity um problem and and the school system uh was once a fault uh and part of the problem uh, now it's becoming part of the solution. The statewide average is only a 7% improvement in math and only 1% in reading between 22 and 23. And I, I think what Harvard and Stanford are raising the red flag about is a lot of the COVID dollars that were coming and flowing to districts to overcome learning loss. Will they end next fall? What are you doing to leverage those assets and resources now to kind of take it to the next level? New gear. Yeah, well, with with the federal dollars, uh, the conversation that I had uh, with the board was uh, we had to be disciplined. Um, Let's use this as one-time money. Let's not add to reoccurring spending, and let's use the money to address very specific COVID-related issues like the need to have more masks, you know, social distance, hiring more teachers, lower class size, to build an eventual bench for retirements, you know, uh, buying more technology for online learning, moving curriculum to online learning, doing more um, small group one-on-one reading intervention. Um, COVID testing allowed us to come back and have assurance that people were safe. And then half of that federal money is being put into buildings, um, $700 million, um, which only puts about a half of a den and a $1.5 billion problem. But bottom line is we used the money to come back safely um, at the height of the pandemic, and then we used it to address learning loss, and then we used it for one-time um, expenses. This year's budget the 23-24 budget is already built off of not relying on COVID money. Um, and we were recognized you know, by the U.S. Department of Education as being one of the smartest districts in how we use COVID money. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of stories, on, unfortunately, locally in Michigan and nationally, where districts use one-time money for reoccurring expenses. Mm-hmm. They're going to hit a cliff. And they didn't really act, didn't even deal with the gap that existed, that exists throughout Michigan and nation with a drop in enrollment. Um, so basically, they use COVID money to fill the gap in revenue because of loss of enrollment at expenses like increasing teacher salaries and other things. And now they're going to hit a cliff. So you're going to see a lot of districts in trouble, probably closing schools 
laying off teachers or asking the federal government and the state uh, to bail them out. We're not in that position as a district. Wow. You mentioned pivoting quicker than other districts. Do you attribute that to using that money correctly and getting back on track? Or what? why did you pivot quicker? Yeah, a combination of things. I, I definitely think it was using the money um, to meet what what our what our staff and our families wanted to see as far as investments COVID related. So for example, you know, we can have debates about masking, not masking, close contact to quarantining. And I probably would say I wasn't completely in favor of all of that, but that's what our families wanted to see in order to have the assurance to come back and so staff. So we use COVID money to social distance. That meant hiring more teachers, but we hired more teachers knowing that we were going to have teachers retire. So we built a bench. We didn't add to the reoccurring revenue. Uh, And then we COVID tested for almost a year and a half. And that was very expensive, but COVID dollars allowed us to do that. So we use COVID money in a one-time way to deal with one-time pandemic-related issues, which brought um, kids back to school, which was desperately needed. Um, And then from there, uh, it was pivoting to say, pandemic is real. Obviously, it disproportionately impacted Detroiters. Um, but we have to get back to reform. We've got to get kids back in school, and we have to um, accelerate our intentionality around teaching and learning because of the learning loss that we saw. But, you know, we did things in the pandemic that other districts didn't. For example, we taught the whole day, and, and, and we made it a requirement that teachers had to teach the regular schedule but online. A lot of districts just went to assigning students um, assignments, mm-hmm. and then they would turn it in without the screen time to teach the material. We knew that our kids wouldn't have the right skill, background, or even parent support to do that. So teachers taught the regular school day online in front of a camera. There was a lot of resistance to that, but that allowed teacher students to get what they needed, yeah. imperfect, um, during the pandemic. And, and, and I'm just going to repeat, we created a new baseline after the pandemic with our performance. And I said, I don't care where we were before the pandemic. This is the new reality from the impact of the pandemic. We have to improve the next year. And this is the year we're talking about related to the data. Right. I think a lot of districts stayed in a place of talking about the woes of the pandemic mm-hmm. rather than moving forward and mm-hmm. focusing on what kids needed. Dr. I, I've got a real quick question here. I want to remind parents that you can find all this data at educationrecoveryscorecard.org. Educationrecoveryscorecard.org. And if you're in a suburban district, all the suburban districts numbers are on here too, and many of them are being outperformed by Detroit Public Schools Community District. I wanted to ask a quick question yeah. about the Crumbly verdict. We've been talking a lot about it this morning. I figured um, we we have a, a situation where th- one of the takeaways from this is when you see a problem, you've got to seek counseling or seek help for a troubled teen. You know how do you handle this in your district in terms of threat assessment and also. Are the inpatient or even outpatient counseling services there if you need to out- reach out? Uh, they are. So going back to the one of the few benefits of, of the pandemic was COVID funding. COVID funding during the pandemic was used to expand mental health support throughout the district and at every one of our schools. And then state grants came forward after uh, COVID funding for us ran out to sustain the mental health support we're providing in all schools. So all DPSDG schools have contracted mental health services that uh, all of our kids take a survey. It's called the um, Adverse um, At-Risk Survey, which indicates uh, levels of trauma that students ha- have experienced. And then they're Are right- most districts doing this? 
I don't know. Um, but but when they take the survey, they're red flagged um, based on how they respond, and then we we uh, refer them to mental health support during the school day. Um, and to your other question, yes, we do have a threat assessment process. So if a, if a kid says, even out of frustration, I'm going to shoot up the school, or they write a note in an assignment, you know, I'm going to kill, and I'm talking realistically, yeah. this is what's yeah. happening, I'm going to kill my teacher. I'm going to... I'm going to shoot, um, you know, classmates or a social media threat. Uh, one, we communicate to families transparently that that threat has been made. Whatever it is, uh, that that child is not able to come back to school until we do a threat assessment. So we determine what does previous behavior look like, other threats, other behavior. And, you know, depending on the extent of the threat, our police go to the child's house to determine if a gun is available um, and talks directly to the parents um, about the incident. So we were starting to build that before this, um, before the Oxford tragedy, uh, but we accelerated and we implemented across the district with consistency. Um, it, unfortunately, it's a new reality, um, and districts have to be prepared, and we have to hold children and parents accountable. But that's an impressive answer. It is. Dr. Nikolai Vitti, we are so happy to have you down here, and we are so happy what you guys are doing over at DPSCD and working closely with the school board as well. You guys are doing a wonderful job. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you. Uh, we're not there yet. Like I said, we're, we're now a winning team. Uh, we made the playoffs, but there's still work to be done, and uh, <laughs> we're going to be the we're going to be the the most improved uh, large urban school district. And if the if the time allows, we're going to be the highest performing large urban school district in the country. You sound like the Lions, Doctor Beatty. Thanks so much. We thank you for joining us. We'll see you tomorrow at six. Take care. All talk is next.